Hello, friends, grace and peace. Today is week four of our Love Works series, and today we're going to be talking about enemy love, something really hard to do. And the passage that we have in front of us comes out of Matthew 5. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached. We're going to read verses 38 through 48, so would you read it along with me? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. I remember a while ago, I took an advanced wrestling class to sharpen up my wrestling skills, my ability to do takedowns and defend takedowns as well. And I remember going into the class and starting with the warm-up, the coach asked us uh, to do these cartwheels across the mat. And so we started to do cartwheels. It had been a long time since I had done cartwheels. The first ones were really, really rough. And then maybe the second time around, the third time around, it started getting smoother. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm getting the hang of this. And then he goes, now... This next time, after the second cartwheel, I want you to incorporate a backhand flip. And I'm thinking to myself, two things. Number one, is this a tumbling class or a wrestling class? And then the second thing I'm thinking to myself is, I'm already in my 40s. This is something very risky to do. And he went on and he told us, hey, listen, the only way that you will be able to lose the fear of applying a suplex, which is like holding somebody by the wrist, uh, by, by their waist, you know, uh, clamping your wrist and holding them by the waist and throwing them on their back, is whenever you learn to apply or to do a uh, backhand flip. And so I'm going to the coach and I'm saying, coach, I, I, I'm not sure if my age allows me to do this. And, and he says, no, you got to do it. You know, like a wrestling coach, like, are you a sissy? You got to do this. So, okay, I'm going to try. And so I tried the very first time and it was a good thing that I did not land on my head. I actually landed on my hands, but actually broke my wrist. And for the next three months, I couldn't train anything that involved my hands. As I was reading this passage from Jesus, part of the Sermon on the Mount, maybe you were listening to these words, and you were thinking to yourself, as I thought to myself, is this one of those things that Jesus is asking us to do, something that's nearly impossible for us to do, and if we attempt to do it, we might end up hurting ourselves? You know, maybe 
you're listening to this and you are agreeing with me, you're saying, yeah, that's right, because there is somebody in your office that has just backstabbed you, betrayed you. Maybe you have a spouse that has recently cheated on you. Maybe you have a competitor that has made his or her life's mission to completely obliterate you. And then you're listening to these words and you're asking yourself, Jesus is asking me to love these people, these people that are seeking my harm, these people that are persecuting me. Is that what Jesus is asking me to do? The truth of the matter is, yes, that's exactly what Jesus is asking us to do. See, in life, we will all have enemies. Even Jesus had enemies. uh, Something that's quite normal for all of us because we're all sinners, we're all imperfect human beings, and it doesn't matter what we do. Even if you live a perfect life like Jesus lived, you can't, by the way, but even if you could, there would still be people that would criticize you, that would still, there would still be people that would envy you, there would still be people that would persecute you, there would still be people seeking to do harm to you. And you know, I know the law that we have in our culture that plays out of the law that's inside of our hearts, that we ought to give retribution. We ought to pay people back to that which they do to us. But Jesus is saying to us, if you are gonna be my followers, if you're gonna be my disciples, we gotta fly much higher than that. And so in this passage, uh, Jesus does a couple things. Uh, first, Jesus gives us reasons why we should love our neighbors. I know it's crazy, this idea of loving our enemies, but Jesus gives us reasons why we should love our enemies and treat them as neighbors. Then Jesus gives us a picture of what it looks like to love our enemies. And lastly, he gives us his power so that we're able to love our enemies. So let's look at these three things today. Uh, First, Jesus gives us reasons to love our enemies. What is the first reason that Jesus gives us that's present here in this passage of why we should love our enemies? Uh, Number one, because our enemies have been created in the image of God just as we have been created. Humans, regardless of who they are, what they have done, they have intrinsic value. That is the basis for human rights. That's why even somebody that's committed a gross crime and goes to jail, you should not treat him as an animal. You should treat him as a person because he was created in the image of God. That is the basis and was the basis for the American Civil Rights Movement. You know, even bad people are created in the image of God. Now, it may seem to you that there are certain people that are coming to you and they have the image of the devil, but they're actually made in the image of God. So that's the first reason. Secondly, because of the character of God here that's outlined in this passage. This passage is in the context of the Sermon of the Mount. And in this passage, Jesus is giving us a picture of what a God-honoring community ought to look like. A community that uh, is now called the kingdom of God. How should people that are part of the kingdom of God live out their lives? They should reflect the character of their God. You know, the text tells us in verses 45, uh, actually 44 and 45, 
uh, that uh, our God is a God who blesses both good and bad people. Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Listen, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And then in verse 48, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you are going to call yourself a Christian, if you are going to live your life as a member of the kingdom of God, of somebody that has entered this dimension, this spiritual dimension through Jesus Christ, and you've been called into this new life, you are now called to reflect the values, not of the world, but the values of the kingdom. You are called to reflect the character of your father and not the character that you once had before being born again as a child of God. You're called to do that. Now, this does not come naturally to us. Why? Because our propensity is to seek revenge. And Jesus knows that. And that's why he says, you know, when when people hurt you, when people persecute you, when people harm you, um, do not seek to resist them. He says that in verse 39. The people that are evil in your life do not bring retribution in the same way that they have brought into your life, but be different. Because he knows that that is how our hearts operate. You know, I'm somebody that if somebody betrays me or hurts me, I'm contemplating ways, many ways, of how to get back at them. See, we, we, it's natural to us to take on the, the gangster persona, right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. So you pull out a knife on me. Uh, I pull out a gun on you. You hurt one of my own. I send you to the morgue, that sort of thing. And if you're not an aggressive type person, you become a passive aggressive person. We resort to passive aggressiveness. So we stop answering people's calls and not responding to their texts and canceling them from our social media platforms. We tend to do that. And Jesus is saying, no, if you are now part of this new kingdom that I've called you in, you have to reflect my character. You have to be holy as I am holy. But then thirdly, here's another reason that Jesus gives us. You know, the end goal here in the Sermon on the Mount is, you know, what would an ideal society, community look like? Is it a society, is it a community where people are always getting back at each other? Is it a society where people are always seeking to do justice by their own means in their own hands, seeking uh, retribution for harm that they have suffered? Or is it a society where people are forgiving one another, people are loving on one another, people are going an extra mile for one another? See, at the end of the day, the goal of the Sermon on the Mount is reconciliation. A God-honoring community. That's why in verse 23, he says, you know, you're, you're, you're going to the altar to worship God, and you have something against somebody, or somebody has something against you. There's a rift between you and somebody else. Don't drop the offering at the altar. Go back and reconcile, and then come back and drop your offer at the altar. 
You know, I've been reading Martin Luther King in the last year or so, and one of the things that has become very apparent in Dr. King's life and work is that Dr. King was not so much about uh, rights for African Americans as he was for reconciliation between African Americans and, and whites in, in America. And, and, and because that was his posture, he adopted a non-violence approach to things. You know, in, in one of his sermons, he said this, he said, uh, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. Throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children, and we shall still love you. Send, our hooded, send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. One day, we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process. And listen to this, and our victory will be a double victory. Double victory. What does he mean by this double victory? In the process of treating those who persecuted him, in the process of treating those who brought literal, physical, and social, and moral harm to them, as they loved on their enemies, not only, he, he said, we will experience victory and conquering rights for African Americans, but we will be able to reconcile. We will reach double victory. That ought to, ought to be our goal. That's the goal uh, of the gospel. That's what God is calling us to. But here's the last reason. Because people who pursue this way of life, they live better. You know, have you ever been around somebody that's always bitter, someone that's always plotting, someone that's always cheering for someone's demise and downfall? Man, these people are negative. These people are toxic. I mean, I don't like to be around people like that, and you don't either. But many times we don't realize that that's how we behave at times, and people are looking at us, I don't want to be around that person. See, people that live lives in pursuit of reconciliation and are trying to do away with hate and take on the path of love that the gospel propels us towards, they're able to sleep at night. They live better lives. They live happier lives. They live more fulfilled lives. So there are the reasons. But Jesus also gives us a picture of what loving our neighbors actually looks like. And there are four things that I see here in this passage that help to paint this picture. These are strokes, if you will, of this painting of this picture that Jesus is setting before us. And number one is found in verse 44. Jesus encourages us to pray. Pray for our enemies. Man, I remember a few years ago, I was backstabbed 
in a bad, bad way. It profoundly hurt me, especially because I'm an Enneagram 8, and I highly value loyalty. And somebody that was pretty close to me backstabbed me, and I didn't see it coming. You know, there was a whole plot happening and going on. I had no idea, and then boom. And, uh, you know, because that deeply wounded me, I, 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 I said to myself, man, I'm going to do anything within my power, you know, to make sure that this person doesn't advance in life with their plans. But God, through people and through different circumstances, all of that being the work of his spirit in my heart, began to remind me and to convict me uh, of, of where my heart was in light of these words of Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount. And I, and I began to, to pray for that person. I, I began to, to pray that passage in the Old Testament, may the Lord bless you and keep you and may he shine his face upon you and give you peace. And as I began to do that over a season of time, that anger, which is not necessarily sinful, you know, anger is merely a response that you experience when something that you love is under threat. But anger, if it's not dealt with, it builds roots of bitterness in our hearts and it begins to suffocate our hearts. And, you know, as, as I begin to pray for that person, that those roots begin to retract. And then a genuine desire to see that person succeed, to see that person mature, became present in my own life, in my heart, and it freed me. Now, I'm not saying that uh, it's, it's gone and it's completely over. Sometimes it comes back. You know, there are certain triggering circumstances that we all go through in life, and you know, that thought comes back. Oh my gosh, I can't believe that that person did that to me one day. But every time that that thought crosses your mind again, Remember these words of Jesus, pray for them. You can't stay angry at someone that you are praying for. And so here's the first stroke of that picture that Jesus is painting, prayer. Pray for your enemies. But then secondly, he, in so many ways, by giving a common day example, an example that those who were part of that hearing audience of Jesus, understood really well. He says to them, I, I want you to live your lives not being easily offended at everything. See, uh, in, in, in the following verse, he talks about, you know, uh, being slapped by your enemies. Verse 39, I, and I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. What does Jesus mean? Uh, first of all, I want you to understand the picture here and the example that Jesus is giving. He's saying if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, back in those days, you would not use the left hand to hit, but you would use the right hand to hit. And the idea here is because you're being slapped on the right cheek, that you're being backhanded. It's a backhanded slap. Now somebody in those days, and even in our days, that would backhand slap you, is not really necessarily trying to fight you or to hurt you, but is insulting you is demoralizing you. And Jesus is saying there are people in life that are constantly insulting you. But when they do, 
Don't seek revenge. Don't seek to defend yourself. Don't take yourself so seriously. In many ways, accept the insult. See, I was reading a a book by an author who said that we modern-day Americans, we we, we, uh, suffer from this condition called outrage porn. (laughs) We are constantly being offended because we are uh, working really hard to build an image for ourselves. We live in an image-driven culture and, moreover, we live in an image-driven city. Everything is about how we look and how we're portrayed before others, by, before our friends and before our community, in our workspace, it, to the world through our social media platforms. We are a heavily image-driven culture, and we work really hard to protect our image. And many times we are way more concerned of protecting our image than practicing love. Jesus in this passage is calling us not so much to protect our image as much as to practice love. In this passage, Jesus is calling us to not take ourselves too seriously, but to be even able to accept offense, to not be easily offended. That's the second stroke. The third stroke is the willingness that we must all have to lose our rights. After giving the cheek illustration, he goes on to verse 40 and he says, and if anyone would sue you or take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. What does he mean by that? What is the context by which he says these words? You see, back in those days, somebody could sue you, but if they were seeking reparations, they could take almost anything from you, like if you had a house or if you had uh, animals or if you had other possessions, but your cloak they could not take because they saw the cloak as something essential for life. It's something that people would use and wear as they would go out, but they would also use it as a blanket, as a cover. It was something essential. And Jesus is saying, if somebody is suing you and seeking retribution and reparations for anything, even if you have no wrong in that particular case, and if they're trying to strip you of everything, even of your cloak, which you are entitled to, which is something that they can't take away by law, Give it to them. Jesus is saying, are you willing to lose your rights? And in fact, all of the examples that Jesus is giving here, they share this common thread, which is our willingness to lose our rights. Now, I know this is very hard for many of us Americans to hear because we live in a society and a culture that's founded on individual rights. It's in our constitution. And nowadays, there are rights for everything. There's certain ethnic rights. There are LGBTQ rights. uh, You know, all sorts of rights. 
And we're always going out and demanding our rights. And so it's very hard sometimes for us Americans to disassociate ourselves from the culture in which we are a part of. This makes it especially harder for us to seek reconciliation to somebody that we see as an enemy because we're always thinking about our rights first. And Jesus is saying, if you are committed to this life of reconciliation, if you want to reflect my character into the world, if you want to repair the broken fabrics of society, you have to be willing, even willing, to lose your rights for that end and that purpose. You see, Jesus is saying the risk of trying to preserve your rights is to forfeit relationship repair. You know, how many times in, in my marriage have I been in an argument with my wife and I have won the argument, claiming my rights, and I have ended up sleeping on the couch. <laughs> I have moved my arguments forward, but my relationships backwards. And Jesus is calling us to say, hey, move relationships forward and take a few steps back when it comes to your rights because this is more important. Uh, lastly, here's the fourth stroke. Jesus is saying here, I want you also, to do everything within your power to seek and to pursue re reconciliation. He says in verse 41, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Back in those days, uh, you know, this passage was written to people that lived in, in Palestine and there were a lot of Roman soldiers walking around because Palestine was occupied by the Romans. And there was a common law that if a Roman soldier approached you and he tapped your, on your shoulder with his knife, you had to carry his baggage and you had to do it for one mile. There was no obligation after that, but at least for a mile you had to carry his load. And Jesus, Jesus is saying here, you know, if, if what it takes is not just carrying somebody's load one mile, but two miles, do so. Anything within your power. Bend yourself backwards to seek reconciliation because that is the goal. That's what it means to reflect my character into the world. Now, I want to make sure that you understand that this text is not encouraging you to stay in a relationship that is continuously abusive to you. This passage is not supporting the fact that you ought to continue to enable people to do wrong, to constantly put yourself in a position where you can be harmed by them. That's not at all what this passage is talking about because after all, I don't know if you notice this, but there are limits to things. You only have a, one other cheek. You only have one cloak. <laughs> it's only for you to walk an extra mile. There's a limit. There are boundaries here. But nevertheless, nevertheless, we must pray for our enemies. 
We must not be easily offended. We must be willing to lose our rights, and we must do everything within our power to seek reconciliation. Now, I know this is extremely hard um, for all of us, because as I said in the beginning of the sermon, we are not wired this way. It's like sin, sin has distorted the image of God in us. We were created in the image of God, but that image has been distorted in us. And we are sinners, and it's, it's, we're self-centered, and it's, and it's very hard for us to do this and to do this consistently. And so here in this passage, uh, Jesus also makes available his power so that we can love people that way. See, we're not that strong. And so we need an external source of power if we are going to commit ourselves to this practice of loving our enemies and building a God-honoring society. How do we do that? By doing two things, really simply. Number one, by remembering the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. Good news of what? that God has reconciled us through Jesus. Here is Jesus preaching this sermon on the mount at, at, at the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Why is Jesus even preaching these things that he preaches in Matthew 5, 6, and 7? Because his end goal is reconciliation. His end goal is restoration. His end goal is redemption which is something that he accomplishes. He takes us who are once known and regarded as enemies of God, and he makes us family of God. Through his work, he does that. In Romans 5, 8, that very famous verse, we read, God shows his love for us. How? In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ loved the unlovable, you and I. Christ extended grace and mercy to his enemies. As we were running away from him, he was running after us. As we were clenching our fists in his direction, he was opening his arms for us. He loved us, not when we fixed things in our lives, not when we got things together. He loved us, not when we took a step and a move towards him. He loved us when we were still enemies. He loved us when we were still sinners, as sinners. And therefore, a Christian, a Christian is someone who is a sinner who's been saved by grace. That's what a Christian is. What is a Christian? A sinner saved by grace. And you know what that means practically for you and I? That because you're a sinner, you have no rights to look down on somebody else, even somebody that has harmed you, even somebody that's persecuting you. You have no right to look at that person and say, I am better than he, I am better than she. Because... Sin equalizes everything, is the great equalizer. And maybe 
Uh, they have done worse things than you have, but had you given the same conditions under the same weather, under the same capabilities, under the same circumstances, you would probably have done the same. If you had the same life story as that person, you would have done the same. At the end of the day, we have all done that to God. We are sinners. We can't look down at anybody. We cannot see ourselves as superior, morally superior to anybody because we're sinners. But we're sinners who have been saved by grace. You know what that means? That we have been receptors of the grace of God in our lives. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if you have been a receptor of God's grace, if you have experienced God's grace, you ought to live your life in light of that extending God's grace to others, even to those who you see themselves as enemies. A very powerful scene in Les Mis is when Jean Valjean is caught with the silver that he had stolen from the priest who had given him shelter for a season in his life as he was getting back on his feet. And here are the police officers bringing Jean Valjean with all the stolen goods back to the priest. The police officers say to the priest, who happens to be a bishop, say, Bishop, these goods are yours and we found it with this man. We recognize them and we found it with this man who is a thief. And the bishop says, he did not steal it from me. I freely gave it to him so that he can rebuild his life. And then in the movie, right, he gets really close to Jean Valjean and he whispers in his ears, with these pieces of silver, I have purchased your soul. And then he goes out of that experience, profoundly changed as a man now that extends grace to those who are in the margins of society, to prostitutes, to other criminals, because he himself had been a receptor of grace. And he can't help himself but to extend grace to others as well. So we must remember the gospel. But in light of that story, the Les Mis story, we should also, number two, not just remember the gospel. And by the way, we need to remember the gospel on a daily basis. You know why? Because we tend to forget on a daily basis as well. So much of what a devotional life means, so much of what a prayer life means is just remembering the gospel, that you are loved, that you have been forgiven, and that all of that has happened at a great cost. The life of Jesus was counted as an enemy for our sake so that we can be made children of God. So you must remember that on a daily basis. I actually even encourage people to wake up in the morning and the first five words that they say is, I am loved, I am forgiven, I am redeemed, I have been repurposed, and I have a beautiful future. All because of Jesus. If you wake up every day, imagine waking up every day and saying those five things to yourself as you're getting out of bed. It will change your perspective of life and it will give you the power when time comes to be lovable towards the unlovable, to be lovable towards your enemies. And so you must remember the gospel. You must preach the gospel to yourself on a daily basis. You can't just wait for Sundays to hear the gospel. You've got to preach it every day. But 
You must reenact the gospel. Think about this. Before you loved God, let's say you're a Christian, and you love God, you love Jesus. Before you loved God, you despised God. Before seeking God, you ran away from God. Before becoming a friend of God, you were an enemy of God. What changed? What changed in your life? What changed you from one person to another? It was the reconciling work of Jesus and his love manifested in your life, which you have appropriated by faith. That has allowed you to experience a new birth and live a new life. You're living life in the kingdom now. But it was his love. See, had, had he retaliated against his enemies, where would you and I be? But it was his love that changed you and I. Love has the power to change. There are a lot of people in your life right now that are monsters to you. And they may be so in different contexts. You almost question, are these people even human? Because they treat you like an animal sometimes like a doormat, like a dog. They hold no regards for you, for your, for your life, for your feelings, for your future. They hold no regards. And you see them in as an absolute monster. But what can restore the humanity of people? Is it retaliation? Paying evil with evil? Or is it the power of love? Wouldn't it be amazing if by loving one of your enemies, you can turn that monster into a friend? You can give back to them their humanity. That's why the Bible and the book of Proverbs 25, 21, and 22 uh, says this, that if if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. When you love an enemy, it, it, you're, you're heaping burning coals on their heads. What's happening there? What does fire do? Fire purifies, fire transforms. You return back to them their humanity and give them the ability to now love you back. You know, there were two great leaders in uh, the African-American civil rights movement. There was Martin Luther King, and there, were, there was Ma Malcolm X. You know, Malcolm X, uh, somebody that fought not only for African-American rights, but at the end of his life for all people's rights. But his approach was very different than Martin Luther King's. He would say that if somebody offends you, offend them back. If they physically hurt you, hurt them back. And then there's that big famous poster of him uh, walking out of his house in Queens after it had been bombed, holding a machine gun with the words, by all means necessary. And then you had Martin Luther King that approached the same cause with nonviolence. Let me ask you the question, who changed the world? Was it Malcolm 
or Martin. See, it was Martin. Why? Because love works. So let's put in the work of love and see the world change around us. Will you pray with me? Father, we are grateful that we have been loved by Jesus. While we were still sinners, we were loved by Jesus. Father, through the gospel, give us the power to love our enemies so that we may reflect your character into the world and see reconciliation as an outcome and also joy in our lives as an outcome as well. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.